Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast, where we invite the brightest minds to discuss the ideas that matter most in politics, art and culture. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect Magazine, and this week we'll be talking to the American attorney and author James Zirin about what's going on in US politics today, and specifically what he thinks might happen with the impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump. James Zirin is a leading American lawyer who's previously worked as Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's also the author of three books on law and American political life. And his most recent, Plaintiff-in-Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits, explores the current president's dark history with the courts. Before we speak to James about the impeachment, I'm joined by Prospect's head of digital, Stephanie Boland. Stephanie, hello. Hello, Steve. Uh, Now, either way, Donald Trump is still going to be the candidate uh, for the Republican Party in 2020, almost certainly anyway. Um, Who on the Democratic side is likely to be able to actually beat him? What's been quite interesting is over the past week, we've seen Joe Biden starting to pull ahead in a lot of the polling um, on the Democratic nomination race. I mean, it's still all to play for. We've got a little bit of, of time to go, but he is now pulling ahead. And there is some polling, including from the New York Times battleground poll, that shows Trump faring better against maybe more left-wing candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in those big key battleground states than he does against Joe Biden as a figure. So thinking of places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, these places where arguably the 2020 election will be won or lost, um, do have a better showing for Biden than some of his competitors. It's interesting. We're um, running a piece on Elizabeth Warren in the next issue, which I've been editing this week. And she's being talked of as, aside from Bernie Sanders, sort of the other sort of main contender, aside from Joe Biden. Uh, She is already being hit with all the same charges that Hillary Clinton faced about whether she is, quote unquote, likable enough, a, uh, a description that's never used to describe a male politician. Uh, it's worth mentioning. Well, none of them are likable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's fascinating about her uh, candidacy is how much she is seen as uh, the candidate who has a plan for everything. She has a policy for everything. Now, that's something that maybe Hillary Clinton might have had as well, but it's it's quite stark that she's trying to position herself as someone who will not, like Donald Trump, Uh, lead on a whim depending on what he feels like tweeting that day. 
I mean, I'm already going to get letters after that joke, so I may as well go in with my, my real opinion here. I mean, yes, she's being subject to complaints about, and in fact about that very efficiency you talk about. Um, people don't necessarily view that as an appealing um, practice specifically in women. But I also think in general there's a little bit of a struggle in how you bring together a coalition in the American electorate one of the things that the Republican Party are already doing is repeating those campaign moves from the last election that are all about the government interfering in your business. So one of the big debates in this election is likely to be Medicare for all. And that's something which we coming from the UK might not think of as hugely contentious or outrageous, expanding um, government funded health care. But it's being sold to many American voters as taking away, for instance, their workplace health care benefits um, or this general idea of um, state interference and big government taking away your choices. So that's going to be a real challenge if Elizabeth Warren were to be the candidate to find a way to fight against those narratives while also displaying the competence she needs to display as a woman candidate. I mean, how much of this just comes down to the perennial concern for voters who's going to ensure my finances aren't hit the reality is for most people that's an unavoidable priority but there are going to be other issues that come through in this campaign now you're going to talk about the specifics of impeachment and also some of the history about it with james but in terms of the politics of impeachment uh, and the impact it will have on this race uh, elizabeth warren was the first candidate to uh actually read the Mueller report in full and then say, I've read it and I believe he deserves to be impeached for this. She's also obviously uh, supported the impeachment hearings uh, against uh, Donald Trump for his actions over Ukraine, as have now a number of the other candidates. In what way do you think impeachment as an issue might actually have an impact on the election? Well, putting aside for the moment the question of whether or not, even if Donald Trump is charged, it will pass the Senate with the two thirds majority that could be required. Um, And that's that's by no means in the bag. It's far from clear how the process of impeachment could shift the court of public opinion over the next year. Going back to that question, there is some polling that suggests voters will be looking outside of economic questions in this election. So aside from healthcare there, immigration and the environment could be really key issues. And what some commentators are now warning is that increased polarisation can shift the debate in quite unexpected ways around those big questions. And quite frankly, the impeachment process, whatever happens, has one certainty, and that is that it's going to escalate this division. Okay, we'll leave it there just for now. Uh, Steph, thanks very much. Uh, When we return, uh, Steph will be with James Zaron. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Stephanie Boland, and I'm here with James Zaron, lawyer, author, and political commentator. I'm delighted to be here, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. James, let's go back to the start and to the president's family and upbringing. Now, this is a man you suggest who's been heavily shaped by his father. And by using the law as a frame, we can see very clearly what sort of impact that's had on him. Yes, well, his father made probably a billion dollars in uh, the real estate business with a strategy of borrow and build. Uh, row houses. He prospered after the war on FHA loans, Federal Housing Administration loans. The program uh, was uh, to give uh, middle-income people uh, a break when they sought housing, particularly returning GIs from the war. He was accused of profiteering uh, by the United States Senate 
and there were headlines because he gave the, this is Fred Trump, the uh, inherently incredible testimony that he didn't profit, he just put all the money in his bank account and never took it out. So uh, he later was not allowed to participate in the FHA program because uh, they felt he was uh, uh, evading the, uh, the purpose of the statute and the requirements of the system. Fred Trump had quite a history of racism. In 1927, he was arrested at a rally conducted by the Ku Klux Klan in robes in Queens. And news accounts don't show whether or not he was wearing robes, but the purpose of the rally was to protest the number of Irish Catholics in the New York City Police Department. And there still are a lot of Irish Catholics in the New York City Police Department. And uh, no one seems to mind, but Fred Trump... Uh, minded at the time, and uh, he was charged with disorderly conduct and later released. Uh, the real uh, racism rap was in 1973 uh, when uh, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division uh, sued Donald and Fred for uh, racial discrimination in housing. And at that time, um, uh, Donald settled on a, a lawyer who knew how to beat the system, uh, Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn uh, was someone he'd met in a bar. Other lawyers had told him to settle the case, but Cohn told him to fight the case. Uh, and um, after he retained uh, Cohn, the first thing Cohn did was he counterclaimed against the government for $100 million for even bringing the case. That was dismissed in short order by the judge. And, of course, they held a news conference in which uh, Trump claimed that this whole thing was uh, uh, a witch hunt Interestingly enough, a phrase which Cohn had borrowed from his days as Senator McCarthy's chief counsel. And he uh, uh, said that the government was out to get him, that the uh, government investigators uh, had used Gestapo-like tactics and stormtrooper-type tactics. And so he began a career in, of abusing the legal system using asymmetrical tactics where you don't defend on the merits, but rather you attack the people who are questioning your behavior. You pinpoint that moment as being so significant in shaping Trump's attitude to the law. Um, and I think you say, you know, it's nothing less than terrifying how this president thinks about the American legal system. Tell us a little bit about how you typify Trump's view of the law. His view of the law was to weaponize it. Uh, his view of the law was that it was not a search for truth and justice, which it's supposed to be, but a way of destroying your adversary. And whether you brought the case against someone who displeased you or whether you were defending a case uh, and uh, you wanted to undercut thrust of the charges against you. In 3,500 lawsuits, most of the cases... Uh, were uh, cases that he brought rather than cases where he was on the receiving end. I think you've said as well that number might be an underestimation. Yes, right? well, uh, I never counted them myself. Uh, USA Today had it at 3,500. The American Bar Association had it at 4,000. I uh, preferred to take the lesser number because I was uh, concerned that I might be uh, accused of fake news if I used 4,000. It's probably in excess of 4,000. Uh, and uh, the number is really not that significant, except that it's probably uh, as many 
lawsuits as the three top real estate operators in the United States had combined in the same period of time. And I think it says something about anyone's character that they've been involved in so much litigation because most people try to avoid litigation. It's expensive, it's destructive, it's distracting. Uh, and um, Trump relished litigation because it was uh, a weapon whereby he could achieve his objectives. You say there that the majority of these cases are ones the president has instigated. Slightly more that he instigated. Right. But he was sued for fraud. He was uh, The government sued him for money laundering. Uh, there were many cases that were brought against him. Um, and many of both of these are particularly revealing, aren't they, as you outline in your book? Well, uh, many of the cases that he brought were spiteful cases against uh, people that really were not in a position to defend themselves. They were silly cases. The classic one, which I have in the book, is uh, the case he brought against a uh, father and daughter that had a storefront travel agency uh, in Baldwin, Long Island, small travel agency. It was called Trump Travel. And it was called Trump Travel because they booked bridge tours for people. And also, I guess it's like Ace Hardware, it connoted excellence. He had never been in the travel business. He was never in competition with them. Uh, but he wanted to teach them a lesson. And he um, sued them uh, for infringing his uh, uh, right to uh, use, exclusively use the Trump name which uh, is identified, he said, with the highest quality of uh, service in, in real estate. Well, they uh, didn't have a great deal of money. We don't have loser pays in the United States, so they had to fund their own defense. And uh, they uh, went bankrupt, uh, paying lawyers to defend this claim. Finally, the case was settled, as was the race discrimination case, at the end of the day. And the settlement was that Trump was successful in getting to reduce the size of the Trump travel sign uh, in front of the travel agency. And uh, they reduced the size of the sign. Uh, the, the daughter said, why would I want to name anything after Trump anyway? He's a racist and a misogynist. But the, uh, they reduced the size of the sign, and then Trump was dissatisfied with that. He wanted it to be made even smaller, they went back to court, and the judge said, no, this was your settlement. You've got to abide by it. So that was the disposition in that case. It always reminded me of the story, probably apocryphal, about Otto Kahn, the uh, great German-Jewish financier. And he was walking in a certain neighborhood, and he passed uh, a tailor shop. And it said, Joe Kahn, tailor, Otto Kahn's cousin. And he stormed into the tailor shop, and he said... I am Otto Kahn. You are not my cousin. I demand you take that sign down. And uh, the tailor said, certainly, uh, Mr. Kahn. And the next week, uh, Kahn was walking in the same neighborhood, and he passed the tailor shop, and the sign said, Joe Kahn, tailor, formerly Otto Kahn's cousin. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I mean, it's a funny story, it's a ludicrous story, but it must also be a seriously galling story for somebody like yourself who's worked for so long around the American law. What's it like as somebody who's been in the New York legal system to see a man like this in the office he's in? Um, yes, because um, as I note in the book, uh, I am politically, uh, and this is not a political book, it's a book about the rule of law, and... Uh, it, uh, politically, I'm a middle-of-the-road Republican. My father ran for office as a Republican, but I was trained as a lawyer. My father was a lawyer, and my wife's family uh, uh, consisted of a number of lawyers. And I believe profoundly in the rule of law, and I think he's perverted the rule of law by really sidestepping the process to achieve results that were never intended. You know, we got our law from you. And the uh, uh, crown jewel of the Anglo-American legal system is the adversary system. And civil law countries like France, uh, um, Spain, uh, the judge conducts the inquiry. We believe that the best way to arrive at the truth is to have two partisan, if there are two, advocates uh, stating their positions and out of that and challenging the other's positions and out of that truth will emerge. It was never intended to be a way of punishing and destroying the other side of attacking personalities, of attacking one's adversaries or smearing them. And uh, that upset me a great deal and I uh, felt it was very dangerous and very destructive because uh, certainly it was not something uh, the founders of our country, the framers of the Constitution, never intended. How... Does all of this influence the type of political operator Donald Trump is? Yes, well, um, Republicans uh, traditionally have believed in uh, a a smaller government. I think Reagan said uh, government is not the solution, it's the problem, which means uh, they were deficit hawks. We've had untold deficits under Trump. Uh, The Republican Party has been a low-tariff party. Uh, Trump has conducted a trade war using tariffs. Further uh, example of uh, things that were never intended, uh, the Congress, long before Trump gave the president untold powers uh, to impose tariffs, uh, particularly if he declared an emergency. They never dreamed it would be used in in this fashion, really, to uh, throttle international uh, trade, as he has. And it takes a lot for the United States to anger the Canadians. 
but he succeeded in doing it. We still don't have a, uh, a treaty with Canada, although it's, we're supposedly close to having one. Uh, and his attacks on, uh, on Mexico, his attacks on other countries uh, selling goods into the United States have really, in my view, been a, a tremendous cloud on international trade. And uh, you can't grow trading with yourself. You have to trade with other people. And so I think that's contrary to Republican values. And I think the other thing which is so important, Justice Scalia said that what really protects our liberties is not the Bill of Rights. Any banana republic can have a Bill of Rights. But in the United States, we have something you don't have because you don't have the same type of government, and that is the separation of powers. And um, Trump has had nothing but contempt for the separation of powers, contempt for the courts, uh, contempt for the Congress if it's against him, uh, and believes in a, a supreme executive, in effect, uh, l'état c'est moi. And uh, you see so many examples of this since he's taken office. And my argument in the book is that this is just uh, the leopard uh, not changing his spots and running true to form, conducting business the same way he conducted it as a, a swinging real estate and casino operator, as well as the owner of a beauty contest. Let's talk a little bit about that beauty contest. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Jody Cantor and Megan Tui on this podcast talking about their reporting on the Harvey Weinstein story. We're two years on from that moment now, and I think it would be remiss not to talk about the president's dealings with women, which you've also written about quite forcefully in your book. Yes. Well, um, of course, there uh, the two women, Karen McDougal, the Playboy Bunny, and uh, Stormy Daniels, the porn star, uh, with whom he allegedly had relationships uh, within, uh, I think, 2002 or 2004, and then a decade later, uh, he paid them uh, large sums of money in order to uh, buy their silence. In the case of McDougal, the money came from the National Enquirer, which entered into what's known as a catch-and-kill agreement, where she uh, assigned to them all of her rights to articles on the subject of Donald Trump and his family. And then, of course, they were never published, uh, but they were, it was an exclusive assignment, so she didn't have the right to... Uh, disclose the information to anyone else. There was an, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement with Stormy Daniels, which she didn't get quite so much money as Karen McDougal, but it was close. And uh, she agreed not to disclose anything. When she did, Trump sued her for millions of dollars and claimed uh, he was owed I don't know, $20 million for each disclosure she had made. And all lawyers felt that the non-disclosure agreement wasn't enforceable anyway, and uh, he never really pressed the litigation. Uh, so the stories came out. But he surely treated women as a commodity, that uh, a woman's body was something that could be bought one way or another. And uh, he did that with his wives, and he did that with a number of women. Uh, and he stated his attitude toward women... Uh, in obscene, disgusting ways, quite often one of them on tape, the famous Billy Bush tape, where he just felt he was almost a, a droit de seigneur. He could have his way with any woman simply because he was a celebrity. 
Let's move on to the case of the moment, the impeachment process. Now, you're a little bit cautious, am I right, about the chance of impeachment succeeding here. But what can we learn from that process? Well, he's only unimpeachable because under our Constitution, it requires a a charge by the House of Representatives called a bill of impeachment, uh, which will undoubtedly occur. And then a, a trial in the Senate the the greater house, fewer members, but uh, greater in importance, senior house, uh, which uh, requires a two-thirds majority. Uh, because of the number of Republicans who represent the majority in the Senate, politically, it's unlikely that members of his own party will turn against him. But there's a possibility they might. And if the House a Bill of Impeachment is well-grounded, if a record is made and it's out there, uh, it's possible that uh, some Republicans will defect and uh, and turn against uh, Trump. Of course, it's possible that some Democrats uh, will vote for acquittal because impeachment is a wrenching process. And no president has ever been removed after an impeachment proceeding. There have been only two in history. Uh, Andrew Johnson was acquitted by one vote. Uh, he was Abraham Lincoln's successor. And Bill Clinton, along partisan lines, was acquitted in the Senate after being impeached in the House. Nixon resigned uh, before the House could report out a bill of impeachment. But a bill of impeachment is like an indictment. It has not supposed to be evidence. It's just an accusation. There's a presumption of innocence. But uh, it's no great honor either to be either impeached or indicted. So uh, uh, it will be a very significant act if, when, and as the House of Representatives votes out a bill of impeachment. James Iron, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with James Zyron. Uh, Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. Uh, Don't forget, Prospect Magazine is out now. The new issue is on newsstands. If you're a subscriber, you would have had it already. Uh, Do subscribe. Go to prospectmagazine.co.uk to find out how there. Uh, As for the podcast, if you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to it. It really does help other people find us. My name is Steve Bloomfield. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.